Hi, everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Karina Bondi from the University of Pittsburgh, who recently joined us for a webinar on traumatic brain injury. Dr. Bondi's lab explores therapeutic strategies after experimental traumatic brain injury, such as pharmacotherapies and environmental enrichment for complex cognitive processing deficits and distinct neurobehavioral and neurochemical alterations relevant to psychiatric disorders. Let's dive in. Okay, so let's kick off this Q&A with our very first question. The first question is, have you looked at estrus phase in females and are there any behavioral outcome correlates? Thanks, Sarah. That's a great question. As I mentioned at some point, we look at normal cycling females, particularly because in previous research from our center, as well as from others, Motor and spatial learning activity was not different depending on estrus phases in females. However, in one of our digging shifting test studies, we did look at estrus phases. And again, injured animals performed worse on the digging ASD, regardless of whether they were cycling in the estrus, proestrus, or diestrus at that time, further suggesting the fact that the different estrus phases might not affect performance on the task and they would all be sensitive similarly to injury. But in our subsequent studies using operant chambers, because it's the first time when we assess operant behavior in females after TBI, we definitely plan on looking at the estrus phases in that as well and reporting them accordingly. Great. That seems like a really awesome avenue for future studies. We have a second question here. This question is, what is the frame of thought for both frontal and parietal brain injuries to lead to similar executive function and behavioral flexibility deficits? Thank you, Sarah. Another good question. So as I mentioned before, clinical findings suggest that patients with different types of injuries, so basically injuries to different locations um, of their brain, render impairments in a lot of these neuropsychological tests similarly, right? Whether it's the Wisconsin card story test or the NIH toolkit battery test, which allowed us to start investigating these tasks and looking at different types of locations for the injury. We indeed are not able currently to separate facets of behavior depending on where the injury was from. But I don't think that that would necessarily be the goal. Because I guess one gross kind of way to consider it is you know, one can imagine that finger dexterity could be affected similarly if one's elbow or shoulder are injured, right? So considering the afferent innervations to the frontal lobe from different parts of the brain that also pertain to different neurotransmitters, right, ranging from acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, once you injure different locations in the brain that lead to the frontal lobe, or whether you injure the frontal lobe directly, you could have similar behaviors. What would be really interesting as we continue our, continue our studies is to look at how perhaps different treatments might lead to various levels of improvement 
depending on where the location of the injury is, as well as, as histological and molecular biology assessments of life cycles of neurotransmitters and determining how different brain regions might differentially um, express certain markers differently based on where the injury came from. Mm, that uh, makes a lot of sense and is a really good question. So thank you for that answer. We have another question here. This question comes from Ross. Ross is asking, do you have recommendations for attentional tasks that translate well to mice? So a lot of these tasks have um, been successfully performed in mice as well. So for example, the digging set shifting task was initially developed for rats. However, circa 2008, 2009, different groups, especially Jared Young, uh, Mark Geyer, so kind of the, the University of San Diego cohort, behavioral co neuroscience cohort, they successfully started publishing in mice as well as well as other groups. So currently, I would say that this task can be successfully implemented in mice as well. And there has been a variety of operant chamber, I guess, versions of attentional tasks, including the newer touchscreen tasks that you can find in the literature, in more recent literature, that they're successfully used in both rats and mice, which is great. Cool. So that'll be really helpful for Ross. Hope that answered your question, Ross. We have another question here from Evelyn. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Why did you use the three CSRT instead of the five CSRT task? <laughs> That's a good question. So one, because it is, I was trained as a postdoc in Dr. Bita Mogadam's laboratory using the three choice zero reaction time task. So it was a little bit easier for me to start implementing that task. Two, as far as what we wanted to accomplish, aka TBI-induced deficits of performance, we felt based on the literature of both the three-choice task and the five-choice task that we would be able to achieve that regardless of which of the two tasks was, was used. Okay, that makes sense. We have another question here from Damien. His question is, what is the grade of the injury in this experiment? Is it mild or severe? Great question. So, Based on the first digging set shifting task graphs that I presented with the different types of injury, we found that the more moderate or moderate to severe injury were the ones that rendered reliable and replicable deficits in these tasks. So if you remember also the cortical lesion volumes at the end of that one study, again, it was the 2.6 and the 2.8 millimeter cortical deformation group for the, sorry, the 2.8 and the 3.0 cortical deformation group for parietal. 2.8 millimeter cortical deformation depth is, has been the standard in many laboratories before we started using this task in the TBI field. And for the frontal lobe, again, because you have um, a smaller brain region, we use the 2.4 millimeter cortical deformation depth that renders similar deficits of performance in the digging set shifting task. So overall, yes, I would say that they're categorized as more moderate or moderate to severe injury. At the same time, though, without rendering death in these animals. Gotcha. Okay. We have a question here from Scott. This question is based on the anatomy that you presented initially involving frontal sub areas. How was damage 
to the parietal cortex, producing specific impairments in set shifting. The way that I always saw it was kind of like a big train hub. So when you block the train hub with the trains they're going towards the frontal lobe, you basically affect multiple neurotransmitters that lead to that, to that brain region. So because of the level of the cavitation that the moderate to severe injury renders whenever you give parietal injury, it is to be expected. And we are currently assessing that with the variety of histological um, techniques that I mentioned earlier. We're basically assessing the level of disruption of a multitude of neurotransmitters in the frontal lobe that might have been affected. When you basically render such a big injury to the parietal um, region, one can expect again that it's not going to be just serotonin or just norepinephrine or just dopamine that will be affected, but rather all of them to, to a certain extent. And as I mentioned, in the multitude of studies of digging AST that were done prior to the test being involved in TBI, all of these neurotransmitters have been previously determined to play at least a partial role in these tasks. So I would say that at this point, just based on the lesion um, study, it's difficult to say exactly which type of neurotransmitter may have affected. But based on our therapeutics and current histological assessments and molecular assessments, we are looking forward to be able to tease out again in more details the level of different neurotransmitters that were disrupted in the frontal lobe. That's amazing. That's going to be really cool. This question is from Hugh. He's asking, does the CCI-related anxiety affect the performance of rats in AST? That's a very good question. And I didn't get a chance to show some of our tests of effect because we're also doing those, particularly because I wanted to focus this talk more on executive function and behavioral flexibility tasks. But yes, so... Not only do humans present comorbidity of depression and anxiety and cognitive um, deficits, but the cognitive um, impairments may and are known to be augmented for sure by alterations in mood and effect, which basically means higher anxiety. And in some of our studies, we are finding that injured animals do present with higher levels of anxiety as determined on tests such as the um, open field test, elevated plasmase test, as well as the shock probe defensive bearing test, which basically allows the animals to engage in either passive coping, sitting immobile in the corner of the cage, or active coping by pushing, bedding over this electrified probe that had just shocked them. So you can basically see a shift, a stress-related shift from active coping to passive coping and vice versa. And we're seeing injury negatively impacting effect as well. So based on the clinic, it is to be hypothesized that the level of anxiety may affect um, their decision-making process. So although our animals are not too anxious to the point where they would sit in a corner and not perform at all, because in that case, you can't really assess performance when you do not have trials at all. But it could have affected their decision-making process, therefore contributing to impaired uh, performance. Okay. We do have a couple more questions, so I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get to them all, but I'll keep pushing through. So this question is from Damien. He's asking, the effect of milnasopran is very interesting. Is it already prescribed in TBI patients, including young patients? 
There have been a couple of clinical trials in which some of the um, outcomes seemed promising. But as I mentioned, it's kind of more anecdotal in terms of the fact that it is FDA approved for fibromyalgia, but it is not one of the yet, not one of the first lines of treatment that doctors would use for either just, you know, depression or cognitive uh, deficits with uh, an unknown ideology, or whether it is known that depression or cognitive deficits have um, risen from a recent traumatic brain injury. So to answer that question, a couple of clinical studies, they were not young patients, but it would be very interesting to see that in the near future. Okay. And I think this is going to be our last question, just to be respectful of everyone's time. This question is from David. He's asking, do you have any information on the effects of group housing versus single housing on TBI testing? So environmental enrichment housing has been shown before by a variety of groups and a lot in our center by my colleague and former mentor, Anthony Klein, that it is highly beneficial for alleviating particularly spatial and learning and motor deficits after TBI. We started in some of our studies to implement environmental enrichment either alone or in combination with other treatments, as I shown in the study with the telegram, to determine how it may be efficacious in reducing the cognitive deficits on the higher order executive function tasks. Now, we did have a study before from the client laboratory where they basically separated the different components of the environment enrichment to determine whether it's group housing or whether it's the toys that are stimulating the animals and so forth, or the size of the cage with the different levels. And they found that while each of those components played a partial role in reversing TBI-related deficits, it was really the combination of all the factors that rendered the most pronounced beneficial effects. So yes, group housing does play a role, but it's not the only factor to get the entire kind of rehab-like component of enrichment. You do need the sizing of the cage and the toys that they are changed daily to stimulate the animals besides the group factor. Okay. That's a great, that was a great question. Yeah, really awesome. Thank you so much for your wonderful insights, Karina, today in the Q&A, as well as your presentation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.